Welcome back, and thank you for joining us for the final session of NC Broadband Matters webinar in this 2020, uh, Spring 2020 series. I'm Krista Vinson, President of NC Broadband Matters, and on behalf of our extraordinary team, Alan Fitzpatrick, Catherine Rice, Eric Kramer, Dean Scott, Jane Smith-Patterson, and of course, today's co-presenters, Deb Watts and Doug Dawson. It is my pleasure to kick things off as we look tie it all together, broadband planning from vision to action. Check out everything that came before at our website, ncheartsgigabit.com, peruse our resources page, take a listen to our podcasts, and send your questions and comments today or anytime to info at ncheartsgigabit.com. Without further ado, let's get right into today's action agenda. Doug Dawson, president of CCG Consulting, will cover the all-important topic of what ISPs want from communities. Deb Watts of Broadband Catalysts uh, and NC Broadband Matters Vice President will take a deep dive in project financing, especially uh, focusing on grants. To wrap up, Doug and Deb will take us on an adventure tour of where we can go from here tag-teaming a discussion on best ideas for finding and implementing broadband solutions. Afterward, they'll take your questions as they come in, and we'll reserve about 20 minutes at the end of the program for that. To post a question at any time during the presentation, just use the question feature on the right side of your screen. If you're calling in and would like your uh, question addressed by the team, please send it in an email to info at ncheartsgigabit.com. Catherine Rice is standing by and monitoring our inbox. As before, this webinar will be recorded and posted on our website a few days after the event. So I again want to welcome you and invite Doug Dawson to share his screen. Thank you so much. Hello, I'm Doug Dawson. I'm from CCG Consulting, and I happen to live and work out of Asheville. Um, today, I want to talk about attracting ISPs because that's what we all want to do. We want to get ISPs to come to our neighborhoods to bring us broadband. And so the question is, how do you get that done? And I do this presentation from real experience doing this. I've been working with ISPs and communities for 20 years, and I've probably helped well over 100 communities find a broadband solution by partnering with an ISP. And so over all those years and over all those partnerships, I have figured out things that ISPs most want to know. And those things the ISPs want to know is what communities should be preparing for when you're looking for an ISP. So uh, we're going to talk a bit about ISPs, how they want to understand the cost of market entry, the cost of assets. They want to understand customer interest, meaning um, they want to understand demand and whether people are going to sign up for their products. There's a lot of other local issues they need to understand about market entry. And then finally, they like to know about profitability. Uh, and so um, this one is one that, it, you know, it takes a while to talk communities into doing this, but this is the number one thing that ISPs want to know. They, when you say, come to my subdivision, come to my county, come to my town, they say, well, how much is the network going to cost there? 
And, and ISPs do not have the resources to run around the state and do the math on all sorts of different neighborhoods. It's very expensive for them to do that. And so what we have found over the years that, that, if, if, that if counties or towns uh, actually hire engineers and calculate the cost of their network, um, that's the number one thing that works to get an ISP to then come to your community because now they can see that number and most likely they're going to say, oh, that's not so scary. Let's, and then they really want to dig in and look there. Uh, we know that, uh, that that works. I've worked with communities. Um, probably, we do feasibility studies, and over the last four years, forgetting the last year because those are so new, they haven't done anything yet, but for the prior four years before that, every single community I've done a study for has found an, a broadband solution and those broadband solutions always start it by a discussion about the cost of the network. So once, once a city or county or town is, is armed with these kind of numbers, um, then you're ready to have a real discussion with ISPs to go, we need X number of million dollars. This is what it takes to make this work. And so an engineering study, um, you know, means a bunch of different things. But, you know, first off, an engineer has got to be involved or someone who's really, it doesn't have to be an engineer, but someone who's really good at estimating the cost of network. Sometimes that, that could be a, someone in the construction business who builds fiber for a living. So they, you need to gather raw data, the number of homes and businesses, the number of miles of construction, and that's a harder than it sounds. You know, I go to communities and go, how many roads of uh, how many roads of street or miles of street roads do you have? And they, and they don't know that answer. Believe it or not, that's not the easiest number in the world to always get out of folks. A lot of towns truly don't know how many potential customers they have within the city boundaries. Um, it's really nice if all this is done with GIS data. That's not necessary, but it's really helpful. You can do an entire study nowadays from Google Earth. Uh, ISPs don't like doing that. Engineers don't like doing that because that's going through building by building and going, how do I get there? GIS data is simply a, a database that says, here's where every home, barn, business, cell tower, telephone pole, all sorts of things can be located in a GIS database. And a lot of counties have already created these, but not everybody has. Um, the technology is important. You know. Uh, you know, you can study wireless, you can study fiber, you can study a combination of the two that we call hybrid, bring fiber to some parts of the county where it's the cheapest, bring wireless to others. And so, you know, you want to you want to consider how to do that. Before undertaking a study, you want to look around to see who the ISPs are and maybe even have that conversation with them. Um, something that we know is a real problem here in West North Carolina where I live is backhaul. You know, how am I going to get my county or my town connected to the Internet? It doesn't do any good to build fiber in a little town if I now have to build a 40-mile fiber to get to the nearest place to pick up Internet. So in our last seminar, uh, we, we had NCMC on, and that's something they do, but their network doesn't go everywhere. There's plenty of places in the state that are still not connected to that sort of backhaul network. And so making sure that you figure that out is important. Um, the other thing is the, whoever estimates the cost of the construction, the labor is always the biggest piece. And so it's really important to understand the labor component because even within North Carolina, the cost of labor for a construction company in the east versus the west might be considerably different. And so, you know, construction companies tend to be somewhat local and, 
in some places the labor rates are high, other places they're low. And, you know, you, you can't miss that one because that can be a, a, a really big difference. If you happen to be building a network with, with federal government grants, you might have to, to pay a really high cost of, of labor. And that's important to, to put into that calculation as well because uh, some of the federal grants require that the person who builds a network pays a living wage, which in North Carolina generally means wages that are, are at, you know, at Charlotte levels or at Raleigh levels. And so that, that's a much higher rate than you would normally pay in the West or the East. Um, part of that engineering study is to actually design the network. Again, the wireless network designed to figure out where all the towers are. More importantly, um, you know, figure out where towers need to be. You don't always, you know, if you're going to design an engineering network, Let's also figure out where, if there's two or three towers that would make the, the coverage better at a county, where should we put them and can we get fiber to them? And so, you, you know, you don't have to rely on the existing towers if those don't happen to pick up where people are at. Another part of those wireless designs is to do a, a propagation study, meaning that, you know, once an engineer can look to see which houses can be covered from that tower and they can map that out and you can see, ah, I pick up this pocket of people, but this pocket of people over here must be behind a hill or something. And so, you know, that those propagation studies are incredibly useful in places out, again, like out here in the West where it's hilly to see what really can and cannot be done with a wireless technology. For fiber technology, you know, there's a whole lot of different ways to design networks. There's three or four basic sort of fiber designs. And, and so, you, you know, we often, uh, if we don't know who the ISP is going to be, we, we look at all them, but what they want to know usually is the cheapest one. So we, we generally, when we do studies, we look at all the options so we can figure out which one of them is the most efficient. So when you pull all of that together, the number that matters is I can go to an ISP and go, for this county, it's going to take $11 million if I build it with fiber. It's going to take $2.5 million to build this particular wireless network. 3 million to build this version of a wireless network. You can start talking real numbers to them. And that now, and, and if this engineering is done properly, it's and to a professional level, then that's good enough for them to go get grants because if they trust the engineer, they can go raise money based upon the numbers that you give them. So that's why you don't do these studies off the, you know, you don't hire someone who used to work at Bell South 20 years ago who says, oh, I used to do that for a living. That's you know, that's not going to be good enough unless they also happen to be a network designer. Uh, you want to do this professionally and get numbers that you can feed to the ISPs who can then go get your networks funded. We've seen many cases where this one item only is what draws ISPs to a market because, you know, they, they are not sitting there armed with these numbers. And as soon as they find out, you know, what something costs, they can start working to see if they can finance it. The second thing they really want to know is, is the potential number of customers, customer penetration rates. And there's, you know, the, the way to do that the best is with a statistically valid survey. And that what that means is it has to be given randomly. It has to be done with a very specified kind of method like telephone calls or knocking on doors. Uh, and, and the purpose of a valid survey is... I want to understand the penetration rates. And to do that, I, it's just as important that I find the houses that don't want broadband as it is to find the ones that do, because what I'm trying to calculate is how many people might buy the broadband product. The alternatives to that are the online or mailed surveys or a canvas, and those are not random. And the problem with those is 
the, the people who respond to those is what the, we term in the, in the survey world as self-selected, meaning people who are interested in broadband take the survey online or they mail the survey back. People who have no interest don't bother. And so you get an overinflated percentage of people you believe who want to do it. I mean, I have a perfect example of that. I was helping a co-op in Oregon, and they have a very large annual meeting at their co-op, and they had about 400 members there, and they, they passed out the survey by hand, and they got 100% of the people interested in fiber. And, this, and, the, and the board of this co-op was just ready to go right then and there. But I said, you know, maybe we should just take another look. Uh, and so then we did a survey of a, a statistically valid survey for the area, and we got 75%, which was still way more than enough to justify building the network. But, you know, it, they needed to find that number out before they just went off. The, the, the idea that a, that a few hundred people in a room represent, I think in their case, it was 25,000 co-op members. You know, it just doesn't work that way. An even stronger thing, though, there's an alternative to that sample, and that's called a pledge card drive or a sign-up campaign. This is where you actually get customers to say they're going to buy service if somebody comes. We've seen communities go and do that, and, you know, they walk into the ISP and they go, I got this many hundred of customers signed up. If you come to town, here's their addresses. You know, we, we've looked at your prices online. You know, they're all ready to buy them today. All you got to do is build here. So um, I've worked with little towns where the mayor went door to door and made everybody in town take the thing. They don't know how to say yes, but he made them say yes or no to it. So, And so those are also pretty darn powerful. Another thing that we asked folks to do, and, and in the last webinar, Brian who was on here talking about mapping, talked a bit about speed tests. Speed tests are important to do while you're doing these other surveys. Not so much that we need to know what the speeds are out there, because in, in rural North Carolina, we all know the speeds are slow. You know, it's a matter of how slow are they. But the reason we, we want to do those, why we're doing the survey, is we collect the data, because in many cases, we have the challenge, the FCC maps that are terrible. And so those speed tests are a really good way to challenge those maps. Um, finally, something that we always find useful is to find out what people are really spending today. You may not believe this, but it varies widely by areas. Even if you go to 10 areas that have the same telco, you still might see the prices vary by 30 or $40 a household. People have very different spending habits sort of by region. And uh, it's important to know whether you know, everyone there is buying the bare minimum or they're buying the big product or it's a nice mix between the two. You know, that's that's an important thing to be able to tell an ISP and show them evidence of, of what people are really spending. So, so this is number two for ISPs. This stuff they find to be incredibly useful. Um, other market issues, you know, I think that a lot of you folks have talked about doing asset inventories. That's very important, what's already there. As I mentioned, a wireless propagation study, find out if you're going to talk to a WISP, show them a map. Like, here, we already did the propagation study. If you go to this tower, we, we show that you can get 211 houses. I mean, show them that sort of, of evidence. Um, one thing that counties or cities often forget to do is to raise their right hand and say, hey, if you come here, all of our services are going on your network. We're going to be your first customer. We're, we're going to be an anchor tenant if you come to my town. So, the, you know, that sometimes is a, is a great way to get them started. Um, bring other customers. I mean, again, come, come to them with a long list of customers who are very interested to buy them. 
Um, streamline construction, which I'm going to talk about on the, on the next slide here. And then lastly on this slide, market issues are financial incentives. Um, we often see cities go, you know, sometimes some of these assets are going to be charged property taxes. You know, this you can under under an economic development, you know, movement, you can decide not to charge them those for five or ten years. There may be other fees that you waive for them. Um, so sometimes there's financial incentives. You can give an ISP to come down, just like you would give someone who's going to build a factory or jobs in your town. It's really the same sort of content uh, concept. Streamline construction is interesting because it's amazing how many obstructions towns and cities and counties put in the way of somebody who wants to bring broadband to their network. I, I could talk about this for two hours because I've seen some of the most unbelievable situations when it comes time to build the network. For example, permitting, you know, every ISP expects to put in permits. You know, no one's going to let you on their poles or they're not going to let you dig up a street without getting a permit. But, uh, you know, I went years ago, one of the first towns I helped somebody go to, the town owned the poles and they wanted to get a permit for every single pole, an individual permit. It's like, that's 600 permits. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, that would have taken two years just to write them all. And so it's, you know, we had to talk them out of that. Cities have these complicated rules that they develop over the years. And they usually did them in reaction to some ISP or cable company that was annoying them. And then they've never changed those rules. It's like, you know, these, these rules can't sit here if you really want us to come to town. Rights away are a big one. I know cities who have said, you got to pay us $25,000 plus, you know, plus agree to pay us X amount of, a year to get a right away agreement. A lot of ISPs are just going to turn and walk away from the town. They're going to look, there's seven other towns right around here who do that without, without those kind of stupid fees. And again, they may have put that in there years ago because of somebody else. Um, buried utility locating. A lot of, you know, in some places the state does that, in some places the county does that, in some places the local utility does that. Um, I was working with a client who the town was their own locator. They, they went out before you buried and told you where the electric lines were and the water lines and the, the gas lines. And the construction crew showed up and and the, it's like, where's the locate guy? Well, he went on vacation for three weeks with all these folks sitting around getting ready to work. And, you know, so towns have to, if you're going to let someone come to town, you have to sort of go, let's give this whole project a priority here. Um, you know, if towns really want fiber, they sort of have to put the effort into it to really get that priority. Um, construction rules are a big one. Um, we, I just recently was helping a client work in a city where they only allowed construction when school was in service. So they could only build fiber from nine o'clock to two, like two or two thirty in the afternoon. Well, for buried construction, it takes an hour and a half to get your rig set up in the morning and an hour and a half to dig them down, which means, you know, you get no boring done. You get no buried construction done with that kind of short day. Fiber companies want to build for 12 hours, you know, so that, that, that literally almost killed that project. It was just a, a ridiculous set of restrictions. A lot of towns and cities won't let construction crews work on Saturday. These folks like to work six days a week. They want to get this thing done so they can move on to the next job. Um, I've worked in little towns where there's not three cars a day and they required a flagman for the entire project all the time. It's like um, there's nobody here to flag, and that adds a lot of cost. That's, that's extra people that have to be paid for the whole job. 
Um, inspection is a big one. Just like they require a permit, most towns will come out at the end of it, just like they would with electrical work or anything else you get a permit for, and they come out and take a look at the work. Well, if they don't do that right away and they come out six months after the job's done and now they say fix A, B, and C, you go, those work crews went on, they left. Like, we're not here anymore. What do you mean fix A, B, and C? I don't, there's nobody here anymore to do that work. So, so towns really got it themselves have to get their act together. And before you go talking about inviting an ISP, you need to review all of these rules to see what kind of silly things that you have in place that you probably don't even realize some of these things are going to be, you know, in the law. You're going to, someone's going to have written a law about it 20, 30, 40 years ago. A lot of these are just practices that have grown up where, you know, the people who do the permitting make up the rules. So anyhow, you have to, you, you really have to look these things over be, long before the company shows up to build fiber and, and clean your act up on this stuff. Um, finally, ISPs just want to know if it's profitable. Cities can't help a whole lot here. But, you know, they don't mind having these discussions. For example, you know, Deb is getting ready to talk about grants. Um, ISPs may not know as much about grants as you do. They, they, don't, they don't necessarily keep up with all of that stuff. And so, so to the ability that you can help them with some of these things, uh, you'd be surprised how much of a difference that might make. So, um, so, uh, so we're going to leave this slideshow behind. We're also going to come back, you know, and talk more about how to roll all of this into a, into a, a fiber plan, uh, you know, a broadband plan. So uh, that's the end of my slideshow. This is who I am, Doug Dawson at CCG, and there's how you contact me. And I also write a daily blog. Uh, be glad to have you as readers. So uh, give it uh, this end of my slideshow if you want to hand it over to Deb. So perfect, Doug. Thank you so much, and I will pass the baton to Deb. And just wanted to remind folks that all of these presentations are available in the handout section on the right side of your screen. So you can download uh, both Doug and Deb's presentation at any time during the broadcast. Okay, hi, I'm Deb Watts. I'm with uh, Broadband Catalyst and also NC Broadband Matters, and thank you for joining us today. My uh, focus is going to be on funding and on grants to some extent, but on the other elements that go into the funding. For many reasons that we're all too familiar with, too many communities don't have the financial and technical resources to solve your own challenges related to broadband, forcing them to find and secure external funds. So where do you get these funds and the need for a multidimensional approach to accessing them is the focus of this presentation. The session does focus on funding, but I want to start by stressing that success in finding funds and leveraging attractive returns for investors, for ISPs, and for the community itself requires first investing the time and energy to fully understand where you are with respect to broadband where you want to go and what it's going to take to get you there, you need to know who all the players are, local and external, and to understand what their needs and motivations are. There's a lot of psychology in this, really, and information gathering. Starting from a broadband disadvantage just means that you have to have, there's greater importance on the knowledge and creativity and persistence elements 
with this strategy. So let's assume that you've done a lot of the hard work and you have a broadband plan. Well, I think I skipped the slide here. Here we go. More than two decades of efforts to address broadband gaps at every level, federal, state, and local, point to a single reality. There really isn't a silver bullet solution to broadband gap problems. The solution inevitably has to be location specific, and it has to involve the efforts and resources of multiple parties, including funders, developers, and operators, and stakeholders whose investments and interests are aligned and layered to optimize the approach and the outcome that you're looking for. Let's assume that you've got a broadband plan, you've done a lot of the hard work. The painfully obvious next step is how to, how to pay for it. And at this time, North Carolina local governments cannot provide last mile retail broadband service. So the best and really only option is to find external partners that can. I'm going to refer you to our May 18th webinar where Aaron Winnie had presented a series of detailed explanations of current North Carolina laws defining options to open to municipalities and counties. You can find that on the NC Broadband Matters website. It's also safe to say that your community doesn't have broadband because its investment and cost, the, the investment cost benefit equation just doesn't balance in your favor. And that means subsidies or alternative payback horizons are going to have to or be required to address uh, the service gaps. Beyond funding, the scale of the engineering challenge often exceeds the local capacity and external resources. Partners will have to be identified and secured. Fortunately, the options for doing this are varied and growing. In the private sector, this is, sorry, this is advancing a little quicker than I expected. There are a lot of partners, and it can, I mean, actually, when you look at it, 57 funding programs in, spread across 14 different federal agencies. You can start to see why the federal angle is usually the biggest. But there's also state support and some from the private sector, nonprofits, and local government itself coming in as uh, public-private partners. It's important to comprehend that there are a lot of other sources of funds in your community. I'm going to talk about something I'm going to call broadband silos. There are a lot of underappreciated options that exist in your communities. When you take a good look at this graphic depicting all the sorts of institutions and organizations that are found in many regions, businesses, churches, schools, utility companies, financial institutions, public safety, farms, national parks and national centers, forests, uh, local governments, libraries, all of these entities use a lot of broadband. And lately they've been using a lot more broadband. Some of them have their own private networks. And you need to understand what these different elements are. They may not use the same provider. They almost certainly don't optimize their collective leverage to reduce costs or improve operations and negotiate better services. So when you do a resource inventory, you need to think really broadly about it. 
A successful broadband plan will include input from all of these sectors. A successful solution will consider what each one of them can bring to the table. A truly transformative goal for broadband planning is to convert your community's broadband silos into what I would call a synergistic system to leverage their diverse funding streams that capitalizes on their common training and support needs, and it can, they can collectively bring your community to a more competitive and sustainable place. But you have to factor all of those into your thinking. So where do you start? It doesn't have to be overwhelming. There are a couple of really good established go-tos. In uh, the middle of April this year, the NTA updated their broadband funding database. The links to these different resources are embedded in the, in the slide presentation, and you'll be able to find that on our website, too. Uh, this database is searchable by agency, by uh, program, by purpose, and also who's eligible to participate or receive funding through that program. It's an excellent resource. It's a good place to start your search. On the state level, our Broadband Infrastructure Office is a place to go for information about state resources, including the great grant. Uh, leaders in your broadband silos also have contacts in public, private, and nonprofit sectors that they go to for broadband support. These contacts need to be cultivated. Your leaders need to attend as many workshops on the topic as they can, and they need to invite ISPs, angel investors, philanthropy reps to the planning sessions in your community. Think broadly when you're trying to put together the information set and the support you need to start accumulating the funds to move forward. For access, adoption, and applied uses of broadband, the federal government is you know, unavoidably the big gorilla in the broadband arena. And most of the federal broadband dollars flow through two agencies, the FCC and the USDA. You need to get familiar with their programs and what their requirements are. The four programs of the FCC's Universal Service Fund subsidizes connectivity to schools, to libraries, to health care centers. You're starting to see some of those silos we mentioned about and to low-wealth individuals and to high-cost communities. Again, the links are embedded for the different specific programs in the PowerPoint. The USDA focuses on deploying infrastructure and mostly on the health and distance learning services to rural communities. The ReConnect program is the largest funding instrument in place right now. And if any of you have had any experience with that, um, then, then you understand how complicated that can be. One note here is that several of the federal agencies, such as the USDA, uh, EDA, the Appalachian Regional Commission, even the EPA, which funds some, some elements of broadband sometimes, you know, there's some, one of those little niche, niche organizations you need to be looking for. Many of them have uh, local or regional representatives, and in the case of USDA and the Appalachian Regional Commission, they have individuals who are technology specialists. They focus on broadband and related areas to technology. Simon Legree happens to be the one for the USDA. He's responsible for North and South Carolina. His contact information is here. 
he's the sort of person that someone needs to become acquainted with and make him familiar with what your problems are and what your plans are and make sure that he's uh, in line to cue you up to things that are coming along with his agency. There are a couple of uh, interesting novel, I, I say novel, private options that have opened up Opportunity Zones and Community Reinvestment Act uh, that's, that's being made available to broadband. It hasn't been applied widely yet, but that's just a matter of getting past the starting block. Some communities are looking at this, and you probably should as well if you're exploring all of your options. This is in addition to major um, federal funders. North Carolina has more than 200, and it has a lot of opportunity zones. These are um, distressed areas that have been designated by the governor and, and federal agencies as uh, being able, uh, money invested there would be provide tax advantages to the investors. 241 of those opportunity zones happen to be designated as low income, which would queue them up for matching funds and for other programs at the federal level as well. Um, opportunity Zones offer local individuals, angel investors, even foundations an attractive investment vehicle to support broadband for community and economic development. Uh, I'd say philanthropists and, and foundations because they have something called mission-related investment that they're allowed to make. So if the argument can be made that broadband can support their local mission or their overall mission, then broadband is a legitimate investment for part of their endowment funds. Then since uh, July of 2019, 2019, the Federal Reserve has re-examined its regulations on community reinvestment program. That's a program where community banks are encouraged to invest and provide the capital needed for local economic and community development through uh, projects that are approved by the Federal Reserve. And they have put statement papers out that broadband meets the regulatory requirements for community reinvestment. So if you have a local bank, this is where you bring your bankers in and you make sure they know what you're doing and why it matters to them. A lot of them want their customers to move to online banking. There are efficiencies and cost savings that they could they could realize through better broadband service. So your solution is part of their solution. Just make them one of your partners and make sure that they are exploring Community Reinvestment Act funds as, as one of the options. That's all a lot of, you know, that was then, this is now. These are the standard things that have been along. In January, I spoke on the topic of this similar topic at a workshop that was primarily focused on community bankers and private investment groups trying to get them to to uh, move towards being more receptive to broadband. There the focus was on why they should consider putting some of their money into this. And then the coronavirus happened. And so uh, this pandemic, has, has, I think it's truly exploded any remaining delusions regarding the need for ubiquitous broadband. It's also creating an extremely dynamic funding situation. There are new resources being made available from established sources and from other sources. Funding levels are increasing. The eligibility for funding is expanding. 
the guidelines, the usage rules are being rewritten. Uh, some response deadlines are being extended while other rapid response opportunities open up. So how can you stay on top of this? It's a very hyperfluid situation. Fortunately, again, there are organizations and entities that can help you do this. Um, in addition to the state broadband office, other organizations that have taken on the task of real-time tracking of CARES-related changes to broadband, uh, I would strongly encourage you to have someone in your group be responsible for regular review of one or more of these national and state sites to ensure that you do stay up to date on what your opportunities are and the sorts of resources that are coming online to expedite deployment and increase use of broadband and critical services. It's hard to beat the Benton Foundations uh, for currency of the uh, currency, and the State Health and Libraries Broadband Coalition, known as Shelby, also does a good job. Uh, just today, Benton's Daily Digest came out with a, an article about a new study on how uh, community broadband is models for community broadband that work. So I recommend that as an excellent resource for following funding development. Highlight a few of these things that are coming out. The um, EDA, with its its economic development programs through CARES, through the the coronavirus. Um, I'm not sure. I can't tell you what the acronym stands for right now, but it's the stimulus funding in response to uh, the to the COVID-19. Uh, the EDA has has a one and a half billion dollars. And it's available on a rolling basis. So as the applications get put together, they can be submitted. And they have stated that broadband is uh, an, an appropriate um, topic for seeking funding. The FCC uh, developing develop, highlighted developments. There is the Rural Development Opportunities Fund, which is going to be it's a, you know a, the next iteration on CAF2, which some of you may be familiar with. But it's new and improved. There's a whole lot more money, like 10 times more money than was available in the uh, CAF 2 function at $20.4 billion. The first phase of that, which I think is going to be the majority of that money, like $18 billion, $15, $18 billion of it, is going to be available uh, in October. So you really need to track that. Uh, telehealth, there's $200 million additional dollars being made available on a rolling basis through the FCC for telehealth, and there's pending another $100 million for a pilot program, which is um, focused on getting devices. It's actually connecting patients to doctors. So this is the next iteration on telehealth development. Museums and libraries have additional $50 million available, um, and that does not require match, which is important. And reconnect, which you you know gets a lot of air, and a lot of you may be familiar with that. That's the USDA's primary funding instrument right now. Uh, that program closed. They extended the deadline. It closed a few weeks ago instead of earlier in the spring, as it was originally intended to. They have added a hundred million dollars to the fund for grants. It was about two hundred million was set aside out of their their total five fifty for grants, part for loans, part for loan-grant combinations. All of the new money is earmarked for grants only. An important thing about that is that, um, as I understand it, 
that money, they will go back to uh, applications that were submitted in round one but not funded, and some of them will be reconsidered for for funding in this, this second round as addition, in addition to any new applications that were submitted. So there's more money, and if you've submitted the grant application already, your chances of getting some money have gone up quite a bit. Uh, USDA has also added in uh, $25 million to their distance learning and telemedicine, uh, primarily focused on the, the telemedicine component. There are a couple of pending things you want to track, and that's the Rural Development Acceleration Act Fund. This is something that uh, I, um, Senator Clyburn may have been the one that submitted this. This is, a, this is just a, a week or so old, but they're trying to move this through the federal legislature as well. Uh, that would, direct, would take some of the ARDOF money and direct that to uh, shovel-ready, high-speed internet projects that could get started immediately, meaning they could they could start within six months. They would deliver gigabit tier service, and that they would be up and running within a year. Uh, they get a lot of support from communities and from uh, utilities for this. So I don't know what the chances of it going forward are, but you know they're better than better than poor. I would say, uh, in this case. Half of the money would be put up for a project by uh, RDOP, from RDOP funds, and co-ops have said they would come in and provide the other half this is made available. There's, um, as you can see, lots of money being uh, considered for rural health care uh, to supplement E-rate, to add to the lifeline service for low-income households, to uh, put some more money into infrastructure. It, there's lots of pools of money and ideas that are in there. They're part of the next stimulus package that the House has put together. Uh, it's, who knows where it's going to go. It's somewhere between House and Senate and what it'll end up looking like. The only thing you can be sure of is that if another stimulus package passes, there will be quite a few resources uh, tucked in there for broadband. And also pending is the 5G for low broadband that's coming through the FCC. Uh, that's going to that would supply nine billion dollars of USF in two phases over ten years to deploy 5G in rural America through a reverse auction. Uh, I think part of that money is also would be coming from uh, RDOF. And the proposal we talked in the earlier webinar about the Fiber Act and how that that's been passed by one house and it's sitting in the Senate and might move forward. The Fiber Act would allow communities to, um, similar to what Holly Springs, it would make it explicit that communities could do what my little hometown Holly Springs did, which was to build their network and then lease it to, uh, in our case, team as a ISP. Um, that's what the Fiber Act mainly focuses on, and we've talked about that before. But a new bill that was just introduced in the last week or two, HB 1122, uh, is it more generally revamps, revises the NC Great Grant. It would add money for a uh, uh, Hobart Gap pilot, $4.5 million for uh, Wi-Fi on school buses and devices and technology to address our students need to be able to study and, and go to school from home. It would make the great grant more flexible 
in terms of um, being able to serve different counties. Uh, in addition to the ones that are already on there, it would it tucked into this bill is the Fiber Act. So it, it would be you know sort of like an earmark in some of the large federal bills. And it, uh, telehealth parity it, it makes explicit the fact that if you get telehealth service, the compensation for the doctors and the hospitals uh, and the, your uh, coverage through your insurance company would be the same as it would for an on-site visit. Counties would still not be able to provide last-mile retail broadband, but uh, they would be able to do what Holly Springs has done, build their networks, and then lease them to others. It would also allow you to use state and federal money as a match, um, which you can't do in, in some sense now. So I'm going to close this. Uh, this session really focused on issues related to funding, but we also wanted to emphasize that it, it's such a truly dynamic time that it's critical that you adopt the mindset of, I, I call it proactive vigilance. Um, COVID-19 is bringing all sorts of attention and funding to address broadband gaps. So more than a few ways, you can say these are these are the best of times and the worst of times for community broadband. But be on top of things. Thank you. Pass it back to you, Kristen. Thank you so much. That was uh, excellent. And we're going to go ahead and transition to a conversation uh, between uh, Deb and Doug, d diving into some of the key issues that were raised. Um, already, and, and I see that some questions have come in, so please continue to bring in both your, submit both your questions and your comments, um, and I will bring those to Doug and Deb's attention, but I think um, we'll go ahead and start with um, highlighting a couple of the key topics. Take it away, Doug. Mm. There I am. You had me muted. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Like, there wasn't a whole lot of talking going on there, so... <laughs> What we want to talk about next is just the general concept of, of how you best go about getting a broadband plan. I mean, communities struggle with this a lot, and we've actually sort of hinted at it the first two parts of the presentation here today. The answer is you've got to help your ISPs find funding, and you've got to give your ISPs what they're looking for, and that's sort of the core things that should be the part of any broadband plan. But there's a whole lot of other nuances that are important. I'm going to kick this off with something, and we'll go, Deb and I will go back and forth. But one thing that I've always found maybe to be the third most important thing is what I call local champions. You can't make broadband move unless somebody takes the bull by the horn. And that can be a person. It can be a committee. It can be several politicians. But in order to get the kind of – just look at the grants Deb was talking about. In order to really have – diligence on those and jump in when it's time to grab money, somebody's got to be in charge of that and somebody's got to be ready to act. And, and without that champion, 
um, communities don't get anywhere. So, so if, if your if your community broadband plan is a bunch of folks who get together once a month and talk, but nobody's really doing anything on the days in between, you're not really getting anywhere. Champions are on this every day. It's a it's a thankless hard task, but uh, but the places that have somebody or some group of people who do that find broadband, and the ones who don't have that don't. So. And I'm just going to pass it over to back and forth to Deb to see what she'd like to say. We have a, we have a million of these little wisdom pieces. <laughs> well, absolutely. I, you know, I'll go back to the uh, to the ENC Authority days where we funded our state broadband planning in all 100 counties in the state, and some of the more distressed counties got a, a little extra help with that. But all of the counties did that. And when, you, when I look back on it, I see the counties that made the most progress, I can connect to the ones that had the most committed broadband. We call them broadband champions. Sometimes they volunteered. Sometimes they were appointed by the local government. But, um, I mean, you could, I mean we, we put uh, Polk and Rutherford County, Pangea, up as a, a prime example of community broadband planning that has delivered enormous results over the years. And that started with a local librarian who was asked to do this. And he stepped forward because he wanted to get better service in his library. So think about all the different players in your community. Who stands to benefit in their organization or personally from having this problem solved the most? That's a, that's a good person to include in the committee. And maybe it's the person to be the champion. They, they are so important. But having a backup is important. Now, a lot of times you see if it's just one person, it's the same person who does everything. So making this uh, a group effort with it, maybe co-chairs is a good way to go. Um, another thing that I have always found to be really important, because I've worked with literally hundreds of broadband committees, you have to be willing to take baby steps. It's almost impossible, for example, to get a whole county funded for broadband. That's really hard. Very seldomly does an ISP step up and go, well, heck, I'll just come in here and serve everybody. And so you have to be willing to, to accept what you can get. And, and so rather than not get the big solution, you need to be willing to take a bunch of little solutions. And, and if you think that way from the beginning of, and that's where we, when she was talking about all the different grants, you know, some of those grants for a half million dollars are not going to do a whole lot, but they're going to do something. All of a sudden, I get Wi-Fi in downtowns, and all of a sudden, I can get some, some school kids hooked up. And so you have to be willing to bite this off one piece at a time. Uh, and and if, you're, if your broadband committee doesn't have that mentality, you're going to miss a lot of little opportunities. And, and those little opportunities feed success. When you start getting broadband and pieces of the community, you get everybody else excited to get it. And so... Uh, there's a point here about where you, where do you get the money for the planning. I mean, getting together and talking about it doesn't cost anything. But when you start having to think about putting together the engineering studies and the surveys, I mean, there are costs associated with that. And you can, you can do some of it in kind, probably not everything. So thinking about where to get the money for the planning is, is a very important first step. I can, suggest that this is a good place to look to local community foundations. I mean, we're not talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. You can start out with a $10,000 planning grant and then show some results 
and position yourself to go after the next tranche of money you need for the engineering study or whatever. This is a good place where uh, Community Reinvestment Act uh, grants or loans or, or investments from your bank, they can come in, they can be applied for planning grants, foundations, the uh, CDBG funds, you can go to the EDA for small planning grants, you just have to think broadly and your COG is, a, is very familiar with some of the sources for planning grants. So if you, on a county level, you may want to refer to your COG. I know in North Carolina, a lot of the COGs have taken on the leadership in putting together regional plans. Now, while the, the plan may be regional, the implementation may very well end up being down at the community level or the county level, but you can still get some support for planning at the regional level, and that makes a lot of sense. One of my next favorite points that I always tell communities, and any elected officials on the line may throw stuff at me, but luckily I'm in a screen and not in your room. Um, it's really important for the broadband committees to just pound on politicians to the point where you have to convince them that broadband is one of the top issues for your county. And once you get a county to that position or a city to that position, you're going to find solutions. I have, now in the last two years, I've probably traveled to 30 communities where when I showed up, they said, thanks for coming, but you, I, you need to know, sir, that broadband is our number one talked about issue in this county. That's why we brought you in. And, and until broadband becomes that high of a priority, you're not going to find the solutions. There's still, unfortunately, too many elected officials who don't even think broadband's important. But even after COVID, we're still hearing folks who are they're going like, who the heck needs that email stuff? You know the folks we're talking about. <laughs> And so you have to, they have to be brought on board because they're a big part of any solution. It's not going to happen unless they're part of the team to bring the solutions. And the only way to do that is for people to speak up over and over and over again, show up, scream, yell, and, and, and get them to pay attention to this topic. And, uh, and anyone who, who, who doesn't like that will probably call me. <laughs> um, I take it a step further. I would almost, uh, advocate for guerrilla tactics. You know, you, it, it's a matter of public record on political donations, and you can do a little research and find out who donates the most money to your local official, and from that group of people, identify folks that you think or know would be good champions and good advocates on this topic, and uh, engage them in your argument. If they're writing checks to politicians, the politicians are going to listen. They'll listen to a room full of screaming people, but when it starts affecting their campaign finances directly, they're going to listen a little more acutely. So, you know, be strategic and tactical in, in, in listing your advocates. And that's, I think that's really important. I, yeah, there's another point I, I want to focus on is because it's near and dear to me, but when you're Doing your planning and when you're doing your funding, it's not just a matter of hardware and infrastructure. You need to be thinking coincidentally about use. I mean, you wouldn't build a highway through a community and nobody had a car or knew how to drive or could read a map. I mean, what, what would be the impact of that road? It would be delayed in, in being realized. So if you're thinking about getting more and better broadband into your community, Think about how it's going to be used and who's able to do that and simultaneously be looking at, you know, maybe even before the infrastructure is built and put in place, 
put some uh, digital literacy programming in place, do some adoption efforts, and get your community primed to really realize and maximize the benefits of, of what you're spending so much time and energy trying to bring to them. It's, it's, there's a supply and a demand side to the broadband impact equation, and you should never, ever just look at one to the expense of the other. They both have to be given some weight and consideration. And different people in your community will resonate with different elements of that. So you can engage people who are really into the digital literacy and the equity component and others who are really into, I just want faster service. But together they make a stronger, stronger group to move forward. Well, and I would like to expand on what you just said, that because when she went through all the incredible number of funding options out of there, a lot of those grants that are going to come out are going to be looking at digital inclusion issue. So there's a real opportunity, I think, in, during COVID funding to get grants to do digital training, to get grants to get I, I'm working with another state right now. They are going to do funding for computers. They're going to give them to the libraries to lend out to people. You know, there's a lot of things that could be done here um, that are going to be funded here in the next year that have never been funded before, and they all feed into this. You know, it doesn't do any good to bring broadband to the community if a third of the people in the community don't have computers. So we got to find computers just as much as we got to find faster broadband. So, so I think you, ha I definitely agree. You have to put your attention there, but I think that the, mm -hmm. I think there's some interesting funding opportunities all of a sudden to do that in a big way. Um, you know, put in, you know, take your little local library, give them 500 computers to lend out and 500 hotspots, and all of a sudden everybody in that community can get broadband. You know, that's not the permanent broadband solution, but it's a heck of a good start. So, um, And it makes the community more receptive. You're, you're more attracted to ISPs. You can show that you've got a market that's ready to use the service they're going to bring to them. So that's, right. I mean, it's all part of the same argument. <clears throat> well, we hit our one-hour mark, and that might be time to have Chris to start feeding us questions. What do you think? Yeah, we've had some great questions come in. Um, so I'll just start in, in really no particular order, maybe the most recent. Um, are there studies that show communities' land value increasing, um, what, if, you know, maybe if they're near a large city once broadband has become available? Yes, there, there are. are. And, yeah. Both have the same answer. Yes, yeah. go ahead, Deb. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there are some, and if... Uh, Someone wants the particular study to back that up. If you contact me, I can send it to you. It's it proper. I mean, you can put an actual dollar value on on how much your home value goes up when you have broadband there, and property value goes up. And the flip side of that is you can just watch what people are doing with their seed and their pocketbooks when they don't have broadband and they can't live the way they want to live or operate the business they want to live. They are leaving the area. And there's, there are documented evidence of um, communities. Part of the part of the flight has been attributed to to broadband. So you not only can't attract people in business, you can't keep the ones you've got. And we can provide numbers to back that up. I'm going to suggest, Deb, that you we post that uh, along with uh, everything else after the webinar, so we can just go ahead and put it on our site. That resource. Yeah. Uh, I would say I travel again all around the country, and and um, I have been 
talking to realtors. We do a lot of interviews of folks in communities and realtors just tell me you can't sell a house without broadband anymore. Nobody's going to buy it. So what, what's the value of your house if you can't sell it? Uh, and, and there are communities in the, in, in the West and the mountains where houses go for sale and nobody makes an offer. And so, you know, that we're coming to the time where that's a make or break issues for home buyers. So. Um, maybe Doug, stay with you. What would it cost to hire a knowledgeable consultant and help a community that is really um, on square one, uh, lacking a, a planning group, a plan? Um, this question comes from a tier one county in North Carolina. Well, actually, we're both going to answer that question because um, I'm most knowledgeable of how to come in after you have that first group. I think that Deb is working more in helping groups get going. So why don't you talk first about how you help people get their broadband group going, Deb, and I'll talk about how you do the studies after that. So, Yeah, I think um, I, can, I can just speak from personal experience working on community planning for the Appalachian Regional Commission and for the EPA's Cool and Connected program and, and for the state of North Carolina through the ENC Authority. I think, you know, depending on what you want to do, if you want to pull together, if you want help in pulling together an appropriate committee, in steering that committee, in uh, helping direct them towards some actionable steps at the end of the process, in gathering the survey data and the mapping data, I mean, all of that can be done, I'm just guessing here, in the range of you know, somewhere between five and $10,000. It's not a lot of money uh, for a small community. If you were going to do it for a region and you wanted to end up with um, the engineering study and, you, and the, the part that, that Doug's talking about, you're, you're getting up into a lot more money. But just the broadband planning part of it and providing some, you know, here's an example with the Cool and Connected program we spent, you know, probably 10 hours on the phone having communities send us all their black back planning reports and all the background documentation that we read through and and pulled together some some basic statements. And then there was two days of on-the-ground um, community engagement efforts and exercises, the result of which was some a broadband vision and some action steps that they could take and some places they could go and look for some money. And following that, there were some mapping and survey work to back up what their hopes and dreams were. And that, you know, that I think that ended up costing all of that at the end of the day. They had their maps, they had their survey, they had their data, and I think that was somewhere around ten thousand dollars, ten to twelve, and that was pretty intensive. And you could ratchet down from there, maybe now, more than you wanted to know. Now the the ongoing the engineering studies I'm talking about and those sort of intensive things, and again. You want to get a good engineering studies. There's engineers who do good jobs and bad jobs, so you want to get some references. Those studies are going to cost you anywhere from forty to eighty thousand. Most typical is about fifty thousand. The good news is, at least half of the studies that I've seen in the last year have been funded by grants. There's quite a bit of grant money around that you can find to do those feasibility studies. And so, you know, that's when we're talking grants. That's the first place to look is is to try to find money to to do one of these studies. You know, if you do the engineering study right, where you study the whole county, but you do it in such a way that, you know, if an ISP comes in and says, I only want to serve the Northeast County, 
if a study was done right, you can pull that number out of there and give it to them. You know, that kind of study is not cheap because the engineers have to really dig into it. But, but it's really worth it because that's the number one tool that I've seen attract ISPs to county. But you, you have to have done all the stuff DevSet first. You know, you can't you can't jump straight to the maps. You've got to sort of have a plan. So so you have to do those other things before you're ready to do that. So and can we list some of those feasibility study grant opportunities on our website or can people reach out to you directly about that? And and, the, and I, the person, those mm -hmm. usually are yeah, they're they're not that easy to find. They're usually local and yeah. state grants. They come from 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 nonprofits. They they come from all sorts of unusual places. There's no big program that does that but yet f people find the money so that that one i'm telling you you have to sort of scramble to find but but a lot of community a lot of communities have found it so there are pockets of planning money in usda's rural utility service programs there are some in uh, uh department of commerce eda cdbg uh hud maybe you might be able to get it but what I would recommend there, that's where getting to know that local regional officer is so important because that person's going to be familiar with where those little pockets of planning money are and how to access them. Uh, you could spend a whole lot of time and energy trying to pull that needle out of the haystack yourself or you could talk to folks who that's their job to help guide you to that. Right, and, um, and that's why I and that's why I hesitate to give you a list because every six months it's a different list. That's exactly what the yeah. problem is. Yep. So, let me um, get to a, a, another topic for which we've gotten a lot of questions. Addressing the fact that FCC maps make so many areas not eligible, um, even if the area doesn't have quality internet service. So, really, that question around. Um, grants that might limit what is considered uh, an unserviced, uh, unserved area, um, not defining Pen 1 is served. Um, for example, I mean, a lot of folks calling in today are from Tier 1 counties in North Carolina um, that are facing this, this issue. I work with that issue every single day. It's probably the biggest issue that a lot of counties I work with face. I mean, I just finished a study for a county where a wireless ISP claimed the entire county had 100 by 100 broadband, and we couldn't even find a customer of that wireless ISP in the county. So they completely shot their ability to get the RDOF grants that are coming out in October. Luckily, a lot of grants, like the Reconnect grant, will allow you to challenge those maps. In order to challenge the maps, you only really have two ways. One is to get an engineer to crawl all over the county and document Here's where I found the DSL boxes. Here's where the wireless transmitters are. That's the hard and expensive way to do it. The easier way to do it is, is with a whole lot of speed tests where you can document and map where all the people are and what their speeds are. Just And, and Brian did a really great thing on mapping last time. I just want to warn you, in doing that mapping, you want to do it in such a way that you don't show people's personal addresses. You sort of have to disguise that and map things by color blocks and stuff. You don't want ISPs to come out and be going and, and harassing people who took the speed test, which we've actually seen happen. But uh, but you can speed tests can do it, uh, and that works for state grants. It works for federal grants. We've helped people overcome the FCC mapping issue a number of times. But it takes a lot of speed tests. You know, if I if I'm doing a countywide grant and I only get 60 people to take the speed test, that's not enough to to challenge. You really got to motivate the community to really jump in and help. So. 
I'm, I'm going to throw in a plug here for my partner at Broadband Catalyst, Brian Rathbone. Brian has, uh, he's truly moving the mapping front forward in leaps and bounds, and it's in a cost-effective way, and trying to triangulate in on accuracy using speed tests and a couple of other data sets, like, uh, I, I'm, I'm not, I, I won't name them because I'll get it wrong, but he's, he's actually coming up with uh, some very good tools to help communities document places that are, to, to get at the ground truth on what's served and what's not served, and it's, it's not tens of thousands of dollars to do that, but it is, it is very important because the data on which most of the federal funding programs is based is the FCC's map, and they, they are atrocious. They, are, they really, in some places, they, they just overstate things so badly as to be criminal. So you have to, you have to be able to um, challenge challenge their data, and the best way to do that is with maps and, and survey data of your own where you've got people. And you can do it. Brian does it in a way that doesn't reveal addresses. It is, it is anonymized. So it can be done. And if you want to talk about that further, I can certainly encourage you to get in touch with him. The state has a broadband map, and they are one of the states, one of the select group of states in the country that's working with uh, NTIA and FCC to uh, develop more accurate maps. Uh, that's a thing in process. I don't think there's a, a final answer on that yet. So the state map is probably better than the FCC's map. But uh, the maps that Brian does are, are better yet. And there, yeah. you know, he's not the only one doing this. I want to point out Brian was on the last webinar. You can get his contact info on our website. So, yep. So. Yeah. Just speaking about the state map, um, how about the state great grant? Um, someone was asking whether or not funding op opportunity will open up for tier two counties and beyond anytime soon. The way it was originally set up was that um, the first two years, meaning the cycle that just ended, is the end of that. It was restricted to tier one. Uh, this is a 10-year program, the way it was set up. And as I pointed out, there's, there's some moves to uh, change, make positive, what I think are positive changes in that program. But right now, next year's cycle, which would probably open in Jan early January of 21, uh, would also allow Tier 2 counties, un unserved areas of Tier 2 counties. The changes that are being suggested and are, are in committee right now are that, that would, they would also open that up to underserved, which means they have 10-1, uh, but they um, don't have 25-3 in terms of speeds. So that's under, under consideration, hopefully under revision. But yeah, Tier 1, two, Tier 2 counties should be uh, eligible. Uh, eligible areas in Tier 2 counties should be able to be um, considered for great grants beginning in January of 21. Okay, this next question kind of gets back to um, appealing to ISPs and the questioner asks, are there rules of thumb for the density of businesses or residents per acre or mile uh, based on typical uptake, household income? Um, can you sort of parse through that with that? The easy answer is no. 
the number one factor that influences the feasibility of bringing broadband is the cost of the network. And the cost of the network can vary from two parts of a county that are five miles apart. There's just so many factors, the conditions of the poles, the amount of rock in the soil. There's a there's, there's hundred engineering factors that influence the cost and those drastically can change from place to place. And that's why you have to do the engineering studies. There simply is no rule of thumb. Now there is a rule of thumb that says, what can I fund? Because you can work backwards from these various grants that are available and you can go, you know, if I can design a network that's less than $3,000 a household or some number like that, you can work backwards to what you're hopefully can get to. But that's not the same thing as what it really costs, unfortunately. There's places where it costs $2,000 to pass a home, and there's places where it costs $15,000. And until you know that number, you just can't even begin to guess. So I, I'm asked that question three times a week for the last 10 years. <laughs> Yeah, the answer is always still no. You, there's no way to know. So we're in the 2020 census, and I know this is um, an issue that sort of comes up with any survey. Um, how to reach out to folks whose first language is not English um, in doing a community broadband assessment? That's always a challenge. Why do you start by having it in their language? Yeah, you have to have, I mean, this is why you have committees. So you have, you know, you can do a survey in English and a survey in Spanish. So there's nothing to stop you from doing it that way. Uh, so, the, you know, the answer is, you know, I, I've had plenty of folks who do that. So our, our company even gives on phone surveys. We do phone surveys in Spanish when that's needed. So. And there are, there are organizations that can help you. There is a, a Hispanic Chamber of Commerce in the state. And they, some of them have local chapters. Um, the schools are a good way. That's one of the best ways we found in reaching out with survey data are schools. And libraries, any, any community anchor institution that serves that population is a good way to make inroads. And they know you can often find out who the community opinion leaders are in your, your minority and um, immigrant communities and work with them, engage them in your planning committee. And working around the country, the other place that we've often looked is churches and, believe it or not, laundromats. Uh, yeah. between, those, between those two places, you, you can all of a sudden get to the Korean community and the Thai community and the, you know, the El Salvadorian community. Uh, and so, you know, when, when, especially when you have pockets of folks who are, you know, it's not necessarily just Spanish. So, those other communities you can get to as well. We've had good luck into them, but you have to get creative. And Deb just said it, find out who in the community knows those folks and bring them into your survey process. So. Mm -hmm. uh, the May 18th webinar, we heard from MCNC. Um, do you have any recommendations on how to influence MCNC's expansion strategy in the counties that are not currently served by their dark fiber network? I kind of like Deb's word, guerrilla tactics. <laughs> I really, you know, speak up loudly because the communities that don't have it need it. And, and the, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the attention. Um, there's a whole lot of counties that network doesn't go close to. So, yeah, you got to You have to get on their map. You have to show that your county, if they bring it to you, it's going to result in a broadband network. I think that's the, the, the shortest sort of glib answer. So. 
Well, and you need to understand what the fiber resources in your county are, whether they're private or dark fiber, because what it, one way NCNC uh, expedites its expansion is through partnerships. I know they're partnering with some of the co-ops to uh, extend service into some of their counties to make their network linked up with that. Um, so, so you need to, again, it's understanding where you are and where you want to go and what your resources are, you know, the ones you control and the ones you don't, just, just what's there. Um, back to the gorilla component, um, I, I would search on who's on the MCNC board of directors and their advisory committees and is there someone from your community or your region who's on there. The UNC system has extremely strong representation on that board. It, it is a research education network that was originally set up to connect the universities in the state and the community colleges to the internet. It, it's grown from there to uh, K-12 schools and the National Guard and, and the telehealth network. I mean, it's, it's, it's worth a lot of hats now. But the U, you have a local regional UNC system and the IT director for that school may very well be someone who could help advise you on how you can influence NCNC. It just, you know, know who the players are and try to identify what some levers you can use. Wonderful. Um, is it true that the EDA CARE Act is now funding broadband design and engineering studies? It's debatable. They, on Friday, they came out with a new directive that sort of makes it even harder to use that money for infrastructure. Um, so, you know, unfortunately, that money has, is, as people are trying to find ways to ask for it, they're coming out with the rules on how you can use it, and they're not finished yet. So um, the latest directive that I just saw really tends to want to make that money solve, and we're talking regular CARES money, to solve emergency issues. The EDA money, is the EDA pile of $1.5 can absolutely be used for that. In fact, the EDA money, they, the EDA believes they can build broadband with it, not just the engineering studies. They think that they can fund last-mile networks. But the regular CARES Act money, probably not. So, uh, But but that's there's probably going to be 11 more piles of that kind of money coming around, as Deb said. So you just got to keep paying attention. So. Uh, this question hits close to home and, and really is related to the reason that NC Broadband Matters was established to begin with. These broadband grants all seem complicated. They have short deadlines. We're a small community. We're, we're a low wealth community. How would you advise us not to give up? I'm handing that one to Deb. <laughs> You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't remember what Susan's last name in Pink Hill. I mean, there's a local person who bought a building and wanted to turn it into, I guess, a business incubator or something like that in Greene County in Pink Hill, North Carolina, which is as low wealth and as underserved as from a broadband perspective as you would ever likely run into. And Susan started attending our NC broadband matters our NC Hearts gigabit, you know, whatever we were calling it at the time from the beginning, she was an active participant in that and just soaked up and learned everything she could. And, you know, that's been four or five years, but right now she is an, uh, she is an ISP. I think it's called, um, well, I'm going to blank on the name of her company, um, Eastern Broadband. 
and she's serving multiple counties. She's gone off and gotten grants, and she's been successful, I think, with the great grant application process and is in the second round looking for more money to expand her network into Jones County and Lenore County and, and that part of the state, which is, you know, historically underserved, difficult to serve, very low wealth. And that's, you know, that's a case where it was an iterative process and a learning process, but she had commitment and she was responding to her personal needs and desires and um, and those are the folks around her. So that's, that's a good case study about what to do. You, you can't be too poor and too small to make some progress. And there are a lot of organizations, NC Broadband Matters, the Broadband Infrastructure Office, for example, um, even the Emerging Issues Forum is getting into it now, the Rural Center. There's a lot of partners, and if you could bring those together in your community to talk about what they could do to help you, that might be a good place to start. Now, I, I, I want to say there's two kinds of grants. So, you know, you need professional help if you're going to go after the billion-dollar federal programs. I mean, that, they simply asked a lot of really hard questions. Their mapping is atrocious to use. You need to usually need engineering studies. You often need to have a professional engineer sign those studies. But when you start talking about grants for funding a feasibility study or workforce development or getting computers in the library, I have seen committees fill those out very successfully. The fact is, if you have a broadband committee, four of you can sit around a table and fill that grant out. They're, they're not as hard as you think they are. The problem is identifying them in time to get the, the grant application in. But most of those require some essays to explain your need. And, and when you get enough people together, you're going to write a pretty decent story. And that, that's really all it takes to get a grant is a good story. So, so you know, don't it, you can't be chasing the $16 million RDOF grant by yourself. You know, Deb and I probably can't fill one of those out. <laughs> but, but you can chase these little ones. Uh, you know, they're really not as hard as you think, particularly if one person doesn't tackle it, so. And showing some progress. A small grant that does little things can be the catalyst to get people thinking that maybe this could really go somewhere. You know, right. so I, I encourage you not to, not to think you have, not to think you have to think too big. You can really think small to start with. And it just occurred to me that there's, you know, there's another resource that we haven't talked about, and it's going to vary from county to county, but the Co-op Extension Service, they, they often are, you know, they're, they're well-versed in writing applications and filling out forms, and they, they have a community development component to them, not just agriculture. They're, they're engaged in economic development now. And I, would, uh, I wouldn't write them off. I would talk to them, too, and, and say, you know, what you want to do and go from there. The other group that you really should talk to would be economic development people, whether that's city staff, county staff, or regional economic development agencies. Those groups basically write grants for a living. They're very good yeah. at it. They, you know, they're, they're going to have all that standard cut-and-paste language that describes the community and the economics and all that sort of stuff. I mean, those, that's what those yeah. folks do for a living is seek money. So, um, so you know, there's always folks in your community that can help you. So. Well, that's all very encouraging advice. Any final words? Um, well, I, this topic that we today was how to really get roll up your sleeves and do it. And, and I think 
the answer is I've seen hundreds of communities do this. I know it can be done. So, so, you know, don't despair. You just, but you got to be methodical and you got to have a plan. So, um, but you know, I, I know that some of the most amazingly poor counties I've ever worked with have found broadband solutions. So I, I know this can work. So. I close with one example that I was thinking about earlier this morning, and it's a place where a local, I guess, telephone co-op, or maybe it was an electric co-op, brought in gigabit service to a small area in far western Virginia, Pennington Gap, Virginia. And, you know, there's no, they don't even have a hospital. It's like, what do you do with it? And we were up there, and what they ended up deciding to do, they had a lot of off-road trails because there had been a lot of mining, and, and there were they had turned that into off-road trails, and people came there from all over the country to ride their dirt bikes and their, their I don't know, all the different things you ride on off-road trails. And they mounted GoPros and took them around and showed people in real time what the trails were like and posted that on YouTube videos and used it as a means to draw tourist into their area and the, the hotel ended up expanding the number of rooms they offered and a, a restaurant opened. So this is that ripple effect. They had broadband. What could they do with it? It's place-based strategy. So if you're in a remote area, if you're in a small community, wherever you are, look around and see what you've got that you can capitalize on and how technology could help you get that message out to the world. And you could start to see some of these ripples. There's a lot of really small places that were distressed that that have transformed themselves and are in the process of transforming themselves. So we, we really encourage you in this path and, and want to help you any way we can. Well, terrific. Yes, we do very much want to help. And I want to thank you, Deb and Doug, for today's excellent conversation and for all of your work preparing the sessions for this entire series. Um, thank you to our audience. We welcome you to view the full recordings or just check out the audio broadcast only. Both options are available on our website, ncheartsgigabit.com. Share your questions and comments with us at nc, info at ncheartsgigabit.com. Follow us on Twitter at ncheartsgb and stay tuned. We hope to bring more content like this in the coming months including another regionally focused session with Western North Carolina on July 20th. We're looking forward to being joined by the Southwest Commission and the Land of Sky Council for that one. Um, stay, safe, stay safe, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us and take good care. Thank you. Bye.